welcome to the Teacher Gamer Podcast. I am your host, Zach Reznicek. Join us as we shine light on the passionate work and cutting-edge techniques of the most playful educators on the planet. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Olu Taiwo, senior lecturer at the University of Winchester in the UK. Olu teaches in street arts, visual development, and contemporary performance in a combination of real and virtual formats. He has a background in fine art, street dance, African percussion, physical theater, and the martial arts. He has performed in national and international contexts, pioneering concepts surrounding practice as research. The big themes of today's podcast are play, failure, improvisation, story, and eudaimonia. As we go deeper into what is play, we start nerding out over the randomization of dice rolling, variables, control, accidents, and playing roles, and how that leads to understanding our place in the world, either through the control of editing change or being open to how uncertainty facilitates play as a way to grow. We get into how putting masks in museums is insulting and are imprisoning them as they lie dormant. Come along as we playfully explore teaching skills, applied learning approaches, and share many cultural perspectives, modern, Western, African, ancient. Welcome to the fascinating world of Olu Taiwo, a lifelong explorer of the stories our bodies tell us, movement, rhythm, character, and narrative. All right, without further ado, let's get into it. Hey, how's it going, great man i love this background and your your ceiling this looks so warm and wonderful yeah. with your wooden it's my, all it's your my, wood it's my, it's my man cave <laughs> i love it i had a debate we when we made it um at the back of the garden it was going to be a summer house or a man cave and so i managed to win so basically it's a place where i can dump all my stuff all my man stuff <laughs> And it keeps it, it keeps the main building sort of free from clutter. So this is Dude, great. It's really great to uh, hear your voice. And, um, and I really wish uh, that you have a fantastic uh, 2022. Well, thank you very much. And the same to you. Absolutely. It's, uh, so we've got to put uh, 2020 and 2021. Put them in perspective. Slightly eh? behind us. All in terms of writing. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's a, I mean, the pandemic is a, part of the global shifter it's like uh it's it's the point in which you know because i'm a great believer not even believe it observe of what i call kind of nested nested cycles so there's my personal cycle which essentially is like what i get up in the morning and there's a kind of regular cycle of of the day which is kind of managed by the sun and and and, and, and the daylight and then of course there are other cycles in terms of payment of of various things over the month, you know, living in a society. But of course, the monthly, and I'm thinking about the moon cycles particularly, as a way of measuring duration. You know, we have Stonehenge down here, so Stonehenge kind of marks solar cycles, which is a kind of shift in this country, in Britain, there's a kind of a shift from the moon cycle into the solar cycle, agriculture and all those kind of things. But the thing about losing the moon cycles i mean the solar cycles if we really start if we if we really observed 
solstice and equinoxes as a way to mark duration in our society, yeah. I think things will be different to a certain degree. But we've gone down the calendar route of these months. And they're not even lunar cycles, which each lunar cycle has a quality that is a, a kind of an angle for the Earth in terms of its relation to the sun. And these, I think, are linked to larger cycles in terms of sun's transit around the galaxy, which is charted by the great, the great cycle of Socrates and, you know, and the, and the Mayan calendar, which um, talks about these things in, in great detail. Uh, we have very something similar in, in, in Yoruba land as well. So it's the idea of larger cycles. And I think with that comes, well, the sun is moving into a different sector of the galaxy. You know, it's, we're, we're not in the same sector as it was 200 years ago. We're literally moving into a, a new temperature, a new something. I think we as humans have the ability to adapt if we listen to our intuitions and Again, going back to the kind of work that you're doing, reviewing the kind of educational structures and what we educate our children with, I think this is crucial. So for me, I, I feel 2022 is a kind of, yeah, it's, it's sort of, hmm, now we're in a position, aren't we? Where it feels like the next phase in this quite meteoric transition mm. in humanity offers yeah. another space. But we have to take it as a society. And so people who can see these things need to be more vocal. We need to be more vocal. Persuasive, but definitely more vocal. Well, here's to being more vocal. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm so excited to welcome uh, Olu Taiwo to uh, the Teacher Gamer podcast. I'm really excited to have you with us today friend and colleague um i'm gonna let you or should i try to introduce you well i know that you are a uh professor at winchester university yeah. and um please tell me what kind of professor tell us i should say what kind of professor you are and also um how long you've been there and um, maybe just a little bit of background of of how you got there and uh, as, uh, as this is the Teacher Gamer podcast, we are really looking at um, teachers who use play, uh, teachers who use um, and any, well, yeah, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it. It's, it's an open, broad thing. Sometimes we get really into the games that teachers use. Um, but also, I think it's also about play and play can be instruments, play can be with the body, play can be with each other, play um, can be with technology. So this is a really broad scope and um, I'll, I'll let you give uh, our listeners a little, uh, the treat that it is having you with us and letting you uh, introduce what, what you do in the realm of play and education. Thank you, Zach. That's a lovely introduction. Um, yeah, so um, as you said, you know, my name is um, Dr. Olu Taiwo. My full name, for those who are interested, is uh, Dr. Olubenga Olushola Elijah Taiwo. That's a Yoruba name in Nigeria. I was born in London. My parents are kind of uh, were migrants. They were 
they weren't economic migrants. They were migrants who just came uh, because of Nigeria was colonized by Britain. Uh, my father was working with the railway in Nigeria and was coming over to do some more exams and some study in, in order to go back. So it's kind of like CPD of some kind. I myself was born here and raised in Britain. Um, my trajectory into teaching, so I'm at the University of Winchester. Um, in fact, my title is senior lecturer, um, although I do hope at some point to uh, apply for what well, readership is my next uh, thing that I'd like to move to, but the professor will be the ultimate. Um, I mean, professor in, in Britain has a particular uh, uh, chair, which is different from say a senior lecturer. My subject has been and is performance, specifically perf uh, physical performance, dance, drama, that kind of thing. I'm currently teaching on the acting course, which I helped to develop. So that's where I'm at at the moment. I have some PhD students. My PhD was in performance philosophy, which is, uh, which I might talk about a little later, but essentially performance philosophy is the area that I teaching and uh, uh, articulate in my theory and, and practice. But my trajectory was very different because I came out of my A-levels and things wanting to do design got to design school in Croydon and, and it was quite clear that I needed to express myself rather than meet a brief from somebody else. I needed to play and to explore and so I moved from design into fine art. Now I'm an old school fine artist in that I enjoy observing reality and would like to reproduce it in a very different way showing something of my internal skill of observation. So the old masters is what I was really about. I like Greek sculpture. I like Yoruba sculpture, especially the Benin bronzes and some of the Ife terracottas, you know, fabulous renditions of human form. This was my kind of passion. But of course, in the 80s, <laughs> you know, that wasn't the kind of <laughs> that wasn't the kind of style everybody was into sort of throwing things around and experimenting with gravity and and abstraction and expression and in fact the artist mark was kind of frowned upon um now i studied i moved into fine art and I, I studied all the different isms of the 20th century which i learned to appreciate so i wouldn't say that i'm uh, an, an artistic luddite in that sense however it wasn't something that really turned me on because I'm still, and, and was at that time, much more interested in people, form, structure, personality. And I loved things like Degas paintings of Bella, Bella, Bellarina. Bellarinas, yeah, lovely. Yeah, and, and just sort of, uh, and, and of course, um, I, liked, I loved uh, Rodin's sculptures. I was never, I was much more interested in Greek sculpture than necessarily the Romans, but I did like some of the Renaissance sculptures, you know, um, Michelangelo. And I just loved the cutoscure of the Baroque and all this wonderful observation of, of form, light and, and texture. Um, and so I moved out of what was then called 2D, two-dimensional art forms, um, into... I bypassed 3D because they were doing the same thing. People were just chopping down logs and then 
sticking it with the Coca-Cola can and saying it's arts. And I was like, you know, okay, I, I, I see where it's coming from, but that's not what gets me going as an artist. That's not what turns me on. So I moved into what they call the, the new department at that time in the uh, mid-80s was called, um, in, in Exeter, 4D. So it was time-based medium. So yeah. time became the medium. Of course, lots of discussions. There's animation, there's uh, film, video, uh, live art, performance art. So there's a, of course, there's a long tradition in, in the West with that. But of course, with those things, the human form is present. Mm. Uh, and you can't get away from the human form, even though the abstraction would try to, in some ways, challenge how we see the human form. But I didn't mind. I didn't mind that. Um, and so I, that's where I started to discover performance. But parallel to that, I was always interested in martial arts. I, as a, a practitioner of, of martial arts, um, Tai Chi Chuan, Wushu Kwan, later on I started doing capoeira. Um, and then, um, and also I was also very big into hip hop and body popping. That was a big thing because of the area that I grew up in, a working class area. And we just, you know, we put that out in this dance. And so that was a, so, so physicality and physical expression and physical skill. You see, I think that what was interesting for me, and I think for some people, um, like myself, we still wanted to show, we wanted, I like to see skill, what the Chinese call Kung Fu. Kung Fu not is fighting, that's a, a misunderstanding of the Chinese term Kung Fu, which is more to do with any, uh, any skill that's acquired through practice and dedication. So, uh, and, and it looks easy, it's fluid. So someone, you know, someone making pizzas, you know, in a kind of open oven thing, and doing all this fancy kind of movements with that would be considered kung fu, or someone who's a fantastic chef, you know, or you know, and we we see examples of kung fu all around. You know, when you see we see someone like a potter raising a pot, you think, wow, that's so easy. You try it, and it's like, you know, oh my god, how do they do that? Of course, it's in the skill, it's in the craft. I suppose it's craft in the in the way. So, so I, I, that's that was something that I loved, and so. Those things came together when I left and I started to pursue play. But I had one experience that really galvanized it. And this is what I think is interesting in relationship to your uh, podcast and also you know, the projects that we're involved in, is that there was a friend of mine who was another bright spark and he ran a Dungeons and Dragons board game. And then there was, there was about a number, there was about there was five of us that we to do it. And we really, it was proper dedicated Dungeons and Dragons. What year would you say and that I've was? Never re- what year? That was uh, 89. Okay, nice. So, oh, so it was board school. Yeah, it was 1989. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was right at the end of the 80s. So the 80s was a transformative time for me. So it was the, it was the end and it was just, it was a turning point in my choices, I think, because uh, mm. everything had kind of come together. Up until that point, it was like I was having a good time learning mm. different skills. There was no real purpose. I was a young, I was playing nationally basketball. That was another thing. I was playing basketball for Plymouth Raiders. So I was packing a lot of stuff in, not really thinking about what I was doing, but just enjoying stuff. And I never really understood much about the kind of fantasy world or the dungeon dragon 
I wasn't really, I never, I never read Tolkien books. I wasn't really familiar with all the various dragons and, and all these characters and things. And so, but this guy persuaded me, he said, oh, come on, you'd, you'd love it. And so I was introduced to things like the D20 and, the, and all these various dice. Did any, I didn't even know they existed. I just thought dice was six sides and that's it. What, what, what else? <laughs> yeah. Sure. But uh, I played a paladin um, and we rolled the dice. My paladin was um, chaotic good, <laughs> um, which was kind of in a bizarre, well, it was just me. That was, you know, I couldn't, I didn't know it was me at the time, but it was definitely, it, chance was allowed to be, to spring from my efforts. <laughs> <laughs> as a result of this particular thing. So I played, uh, and his name was Kether. Um, I was also interested in, I was reading a lot on, on the Kabbalah, the um, uh, Jewish mystical, metaphysical practice, uh, religious practice, but I was just interested in the kind of framework of mythology and myth. So it was a holy night, and so we called Kether. So I was already, in that moment, it was play. It was all play. It was play with dice. It was play with self. It was play with characters. It was play with each other because we met every week on a regular basis nice. um, for long periods of time. And of course, we had a continual storyline that went with it. There were certain things that happened in that period which kind of reflected on what I was doing in my life that made me realize the power of the imagination and the power of play. Now, I have to remember that I did a fine art degree in my third year. I moved, well, I, because I was doing 4D, they, they, they didn't really have that many experts in things like physical theater, drama, and how to, and the games you need to play to mm. sort of elicit improvisation and those kinds of things. So I went to Roll College in Exmouth, which was a kind of teacher training school. Mm-hmm. And they had a really good drama department there. And they, they got me for a, a, mod, a semester to go and, you know, I think it was a couple of semesters, actually. It was, it was basically the whole of the second, third year. Um, and it's fantastic. It was a real eye-opener into the use of play and improvisation and unlocking the, the, the landscape of the imagination. And so that's where I got into, um, so, so all that came together in the kind of Dungeons and Dragons. And at the end of that, because I I had to stop. I had two two bits, because it was, I mean, we went on for about six months. Fantastic, intense. intense. Um, and it's quite remarkable, the relationship between a story unfolding and the dice rolling. At that, I have no, explanation as to how that happens but i know that anyone who plays Dungeons and dragon on the game rolling a dice i've never played it online so i don't know if it's a similar kind of experience but i imagine it is that there was something odd going on there which was very compelling and addictive and so i had to stop <laughs> i had to force myself to stop so that i could actually reflect on this this wonderful gift that i've been given with this this game as yeah. it were and then I applied that. And it was actually after that, I stopped playing National League basketball. I decided, right, I'm not going to pursue the basketball and explore theatre. And I went to, and we, I formed a theatre company with some people. I went to Edinburgh Festival. I did films. It exploded. 1990 was an explosion of creativity. And that's, that was a turning point. That, that was a turning point. So, so I think 
at the, the heart, and I say this to my students quite a lot, at the heart of my work, I talk about students playing, they use playwrights to make plays. And so I say, look, let's just work this in a kind of very clearly basic term in terms of the art of drama and acting. Players play with playwrights plays to make plays. <laughs> I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's players, we act in plays. We play with plays to make plays. The common denominator there is quite clearly play. Yes, sir. And so at the heart of everything I do is how do we unlock the vast universe of landscape in the imagination of each individual? And one, one thing I learned, and I think this is one thing that dices one, the, 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 the random generator, because we have a, we have a thing in, in Yoruba land called Ifa. Ifa is like, like the I, I Ching. The nearest, the nearest divination tool similar to Ifa is Chinese I Ching. I think Chinese I Ching has 60, 64 characters or something like that or 64 variations, and, and I think with the uh, Ifar, it's still based around that kind of, those multiples, it's, it's 256, you know, 16 times 16, essentially. Yeah, it's a randomization, right? Yeah, it's completely, it's, and, uh, it, it links into kind of, interestingly, it links into a lot of computer code. It's randomization, but it's more to do with a random generator. So how do you generate random randomness? Because if, one is tuning into the intelligence of space-time or temporal space, then one has to have a random generator so that no other influences are in, in there. And that's where dice, that's why I think the dice is quite clever because it's using the platonic, I later found out that it's the platonic forms, the five platonic forms as a way to mark dice to, and, and then to create random, random generation. And that's really important because it allows for each individual to have a relationship with the moment and not a relationship with another person's idea. What I mean is you're not beholden to another person's idea. You have a relationship to the moment where all ideas are contributing. Yeah. So there's a kind of uh, unfolding that emerges. As a, and that's where play, I think, is crucial. Chekhov talks about this beautifully in his work as an actor. He talks about um, the atmosphere created by the landscape of a kind of collaborative play, which is what we as a viewers love when we we see a beautiful piece of work and we're absorbed into it we don't think about its in, individual parts we just take the atmosphere there's a long answer <laughs> <laughs> excellent i love it i love it that was amazing yeah there's there's so much i could uh, i could say or add or 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 resonate with that from so many points so i i I have to say that the randomization um, around role-playing games and using the dice, because you set some intentions or you say what you're doing, like we do in yeah. life. Like we, you know, I walk out the door and I go, I go to do something or I, I, I go to meet someone or I go to perform something or in maybe your, in my case, I go to teach something and how that actually goes has to do with how the relationship I have with those others what they bring, but then all the random things that could possibly happen. It could rain. Mm. Um, uh, I could, for whatever reason, forget to bring my lunch, uh, which can change the trajectory of my day. Um, 
I could, um, something could be delivered as I walk out the door just by timing and that thing I have with me and I wouldn't otherwise maybe have it that day. Um, and these are just all sorts of random possibilities. And then what can happen uh, on the way to work and, or on the way to play, I should maybe say, to then put that into a game, right? So we, so we, we change a little bit the, the, the rules uh, or we change, maybe not the rules, but we change the setting and the environment. And we maybe put some, some, some spin on it. We might make the tech level higher or lower. Uh, we might take it back in the past. We might put it on a different planet. We might uh, make it the ability for something supernatural to be regular, or maybe it's still irregular. Maybe it's only something that works if you believe in it. Maybe it only works if it's uh, uh, brought by, a, by a, an item or a formula. You know, there's so many different ways you, could, you can bring uh, some kind of new level of um, circumstances. However, as long as we as players agree that at a certain moment, there's something undeterminable by us, and we're going to leave that to the randomization, it's there where we take our imaginations, which can be totally nonlinear, into a linear moment where we're all here in this moment and what I said I'm going to do, or what you say you're going to do, we leave it to the roll of a die to determine yeah. the success, failure, the epic success, the epic failure, or some myriad gray area in between of, of how that went. And then when you add to that a number of people doing a number of different things, and then we try to tell the story of all that happening together, um, really is where role-playing role playing games is really unlike anything else um and it's well, so I mean, exciting i think exactly that i mean uh, the, the the of course those of us who remember our childhood or those of us who have children will remember that and this is what i think is exemplified by peter pan the landscape of childhood which is very real it's very vivid uh and we all know and we all remember and as, as parents we i, I mean Basically, for me, I, I kind of cheated because I just pretended to grow up. And uh, so it was, all, it was, it was, but essentially, we all know that there's a moment where we kind of have to leave that world behind a bit and get serious. And it's right. a real painful, it's not an easy thing to do. So true. We know that. So you have this, we know this, we remember that moment. But, and there is a transition. That transition is, well, okay, we're moving from the Tinkerbell world the magical world of play into how do we utilize this? But often what happens is education says, put that aside and then this is what we do. This is how we, we, we model the universe and the world. Yeah, let's get on um, with it, right? Get on, yeah, let's get on, we'll put that aside and you can do that in your own time. Uh, you, you can, maybe you can right. write a beautiful thing, you can do, but actually the idea of it being a way in which we examine the world and in, 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 interrogate the world. No, no, you put that aside. We have science yeah. for that. Um, and, 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 but when we, 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 and I noticed with my children, I remember thinking myself, I, you know, cause I, I value this landscape of the imagination. And we, you know, we used to 
you know, you, they do something, you think, well, I need to tell them off because I need to let them know that this is not a good thing. And so we would you end up hearing yourself sounding a bit like your parents, you know. And, and, then, and then suddenly you listen to them playing and then they'd have toys and they'd put them and they'll be telling the same thing to their toys. And you think, <laughs> wow, that's right. play. And so, and, and, and I think Winnicott talks about this beautifully in, in the idea of the transitional objects, the, the, the transitional objects between the child and the mother. When the, the child comes out of the womb, it's essentially omnipotent with the mother. And then there's a point when the mother has to leave the child and the child realizes it's not omnipotent with the mother and it perceives a gap, it perceives a gulf. And Winnicott talks about that. What the mother does is it gives it a transitional object. It might be a dummy or it might be a toy or a blanket. And then it, that then becomes that they play with it. And that play, the playing with it, investigating it, is a way in which they try and bridge that gap yeah. between themselves and omnipotence. It's a and thera therapeutic, right? It's like yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So and so, so I, so I, I, I and I think that just goes on until you're and that that, that space <laughs> given to us by that transition just goes on. It just yeah. goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you transition from one, in a sense, support to another. I guess could we use that word? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it, it, and then and we have all sorts of transitional objects. We are obsessed with this, and we and mm. and and I think computers, to a certain degree, how we relate to computers is that it should be a national debate, um, and yeah. technology screens and algorithms, because that is changing the nature of how we perceive our transitional relationship with phenomena, mm. and uh, play is crucial in controlling our sense of self or not even controlling um becoming comfortable with uncertainty which is i, I wrote a paper about it's a long time ago about becoming uh, uh feelings of uncertainty to optimize uh, practice or optimize optimize uh yeah artistic practice or even design practice you know mm. and as you mentioned earlier when you're saying quite clearly and i totally agree with you that ran randomization is how you meet the moment so as you as you move through each moment there are so many different variables mm -hmm. that can change uh and if you want to control those variables then you edit out any possibility of of change that could be beneficial or or, or, or um, expansive and whereas if you're meeting each moment with change then you're always and you're comfortable with uncertainty then the sense of improvisation and noticing and aware being aware of and then playing with becomes um, much more exciting I think um, and, and so yeah so I think that the uh, the, the, the the role of play the role of play and the role of exploration and uncertainty and chance, that landscape, that inner landscape, is, uh, is our way of investigating and understanding the world. Um, and anyone will tell you, any scientist will tell you that actually a lot of discoveries come through play, <laughs> you know, will come through play and experimentation and accidents. Um, and um, penicillin was not 
uh, was not something that came just like that. It was an accident. It was they were looking for something else, and this was a byproduct and tested that. And then so so if they didn't notice it, if they weren't open to it, we probably wouldn't have had it by now, or it might have been later on or something like that. So so that's what I think is quite interesting about the role of play in un, not just in terms of therapy and not as well as that's important therapy and well-being but actually in investigating and understanding the world mm. understanding our place in the world and how we how we can interrogate its existence and its symbiosis with us through through um that relationship i remember i remember when my drawing practice changed as well way back before I started to my, my um, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I was disappointed when I get to art college because I felt like I've just discovered this wonderful thing of drawing and now you're saying I can't draw <laughs> you say, I've got to throw stuff around you know um, but I remember I was drawing things it was, it was still live so and, and those of those of you who understand who, who do um, traditional drawing will know what a still life is and you set up a life and you try and draw what you see and it's all about the skill of looking or ways of seeing and um and I was I was quite good at it but I had problems with it because I couldn't let I couldn't find I couldn't get the objects to sit on the table or, or you know they were slightly sometimes I thought what am I doing wrong mm. and I remember an older gentleman a wise gentleman beautiful drawer uh, this is an adult education class. He said to me, oh, don't draw the objects. Draw the spaces between the objects and the objects will be situated. Mm-hmm. And Beautiful. I just thought it was some, you know, I thought, well, yeah, yeah, okay. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but then, so he went away and I thought, yeah, okay, whatever. So then I thought, so I carried on and it was not working. I thought, okay, let me try this. And so I started to draw the space of course, that was a, it's a really weird thing to do when you're starting out drawing, thinking because you always want to draw the object, you're looking at the object. But when you yeah. draw the space between the object, of course, the objects appear and they are situated. It was enlightening. Beautiful. And it's suddenly all the great masters in the past, when I see these beautiful still lives, especially the Dutch painters, some of the Dutch painters are fantastic. Rembrandt is a master of this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, beautiful, situated draw and think how is it so situated what is he doing with this perspective and of course it came alive in that moment but of course the wisdom of that is wonderful you know i we have ubuntu which is um, um, a uh, zulu or south african term which basically means i am because we are it's very different from i am i i i i think therefore i am just very decarpian right individualist perspective on the way we see the world and and is a basis of scientism which is which i think i'm not knocking that i think there's an interesting place for a kind of i think therefore i am and then you look at what is not and investigate but it 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 gives a fallacy that i think therefore i think in an isolated vacuum in a descartian um isolated space whereas from an african point of view i am because we are and in fact there was a there's a particular philosopher in west africa nigeria who kind of expanded it and said i think this is a really good 
a good way of looking at it, which is the complete cycle would be, I am because we are, since we are, therefore I am. And that, that, that to me, it exemplifies a kind of social dynamic of the, of the drawing quality of, you don't draw the objects, you draw the space between the objects and the objects will appear. Therefore they are. Yeah, therefore they are, yeah. I love it. And well, you know, the other thing of the Descartes, I always felt like, um, just to, to play a little note on that, I always um, felt like there was a question mark at the end and it just, uh, like that piece of the stone broke off and I always wondered whether it was really a question. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. I, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, I think Descartes <laughs> has a bad rap in, in, in the West because <laughs> I think he's about, but also he was, unfortunately, I mean, I, I, think it's more, I, I think you're absolutely right there because the thing is, I was talking to someone about it and we were talking about it and actually Descartes was stuck between a rock and a hard place because at the time, the church had a much more powerful um, uh, sway on how we perceive and construct the inner life. And so along comes Descartes, who's kind of basically, you know, in one way sort of dismisses the medieval perspective and saying that, wait a minute, we have the extended world of matter and material, and then you have the non-extended world, of the, which is the, the psyche and, and the uh, intentions and those kind of things. And that there, and then of course he had this idea that the pituitary gland was the one that linked the two in some particular way, which comes back from a lot of kind of Egyptian metaphysics and stuff like that. But essentially that's where he was going from. But of course, when, and because his argument was very cogent and very, um, you know, very uh, articulate, the, the, I, I got the idea that, that or somebody told me that the church said, okay, you can deal with the extended stuff, but the, in, the non-extended stuff is the domain of the church and you mustn't touch that. Because of course, at that time, you know, you could be blasphemous. You could, that could be, a, you know, having kind of views around your own subjectivity outside of the church could be seen as blasphemous and pagan. And so, so I got a feeling that a lot of what he said in some ways was kind of code, yeah. code as a code for, for a time where he had to compromise. Or would he even be able to ask that question, right? Like, or can, can doubt or uncertainty, was doubt or uncertainty allowed, especially as you allowed. said, with, yeah, with the exactly. church? Yeah. So, so I, I always wondered if that was more of a question than a statement, actually. Yeah. I would yeah. like, to, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's that, yeah, yeah. So, so here we are, we're on this podcast and, um, and this is so fascinating and I can uh, endlessly um, chat um, philosophy. I would love for us um, just in this moment here of our uh, circumstances as we randomly or not so randomly come together, you and I, to, um, to, to consider uh, and, and, and put to you the question, what, what do you think... Um, 
and maybe we can put a number on it. We can shoot for 10. Maybe we'll get more, maybe we'll get fewer. But um, when you're teaching play in whatever, you know, forms, and I think over the years that's taken many different forms, um, what would you say are the skills that you're looking for your students to achieve? And if you, you know, and we can just take them one by one as, as they come up. And then maybe an example of, of one way that actually happened or, or an activity you, you tried or something that you could suggest so that anybody who's listening, especially teacher gamers or people who are thinking about applying, uh, you know, this is like r- applied role-playing games, you know, applied gaming, applied, applied playing, maybe we can even say. Mm-hmm. Um, what is a way that we can apply um, some, you know, uh, an activity or, or something, or maybe just an anecdote you might share with us. But again, just starting off, maybe you could uh, list or come, we can just go one by one, uh, different skills that you, uh, because I'm also, again, very interested in life skills, something that, that people take away and can, and, um, you know, it may, maybe, maybe teaching is not as important. I use the word teacher gamer because we know what the word teaching, but maybe it's more like gamer learning uh or maybe you know what i'm really focusing in on is is uh guidance in learning so what skills do you feel like you're trying to guide learners to uh to develop wow um so broadly and these are all so, so uh think of these as uh fractal uh, and, and, and the way in which a tree emerges. So you've got the trunk and then you've got the branches and then you, they, they fractalize. And then of course they also, as above, so below. So you have the same sort of structure underneath, underneath the ground. So if, with that model in mind, I will stay with the main branches, but there is a fractalization which happens, which, which takes us into to the leaves. And that- Are you- and, are you referring, or can I ask you if uh, if you have a, if we have a parenthesis there for the the mustard seed? Uh, is that is that ringing a bell? Oh yeah, yes, yes, very yes, yes. That's yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, the the way in which it bifurcates and opens up. But essentially, I'm looking at. I mean, the mustard seed will be a good way to see it as it's emerging. But there, it's it's you know, it's observing any kind of most plane trees where you see two strokes and then each particular branch has another two and then one comes out or you might have a central stem and then each each point a new stem emerges out of it that sort of thing so so that's much more a model for which I'm going to sort of speak to now so a couple of those particular branches will be two big ones are embodiment and then improvisation of course those two things require lots of I love lots it. of things yeah so but embodiment uh and then with that comes things like immersive being immersed in the activity and also some really good work done um on the nature of flow where the embodiment and the improvisation allows takes two things embodiment is the physical engagement in the situation and therefore in things like alignment, how you're sitting, 
you know your your the contact your physical contact with the, the world that you're 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 engaging in but the improvisation is not blocking it's not blocking situations if you have a block that prevents progress or it stops opportunity keith johnson and his book is called impro just impro plain impro it's an old book now beautiful book very very uh, very subtle um and it talks about improvisation uh and it talks about the I think there are there are actually improvisation societies as a result of the book, but I think like all those things, I'm I'm wary. I don't know about them, but I'm wary because I think when you start to codify it, you lose the very nature of what he's talking about, which is spontaneity and responding to chance and responding to things around you and being alive to that. Um, so he talks about yes and rather than no, no blocks or if someone offers you something in a in an improvisational play and you go no we're not doing that or you, you block it then you prevent right. any possibility of that flow moving on whereas if you go yes and we might go yes but or you might go yes as you know yes so mm. you know so, so these these are uh, where the flow has tributaries like a river to go down so improvisation i will say is crucial in play and and all the kind of attendant capacities but also with improvisation it's about losing oneself and losing ego because the ego which is a very powerful tool but the ego is what blocks because it's like no i'm not giving you chance to own this moment <laughs> oh i'm i'm in charge of this moment whereas when you're playing, no one's in charge. The moment is unfolding. Right. Ownership is a real problem. Again, this is not, you know, no one owns anything. The idea of being an individual, isolated individual, I mean, so this is one of the criticisms of individualism. I mean, it's great for marketism and market because you, you sell to an individual. But we're not individuals. That's why you have people who have massive fridges uh, mm. next door to each other. And you think, well, I only use 20% of my fridge, the other person next door uses 10% of their fridge and we've got all this capacity where we could actually share it, you know, you know, but no, it's not, doesn't work, you know. We have people in big cars driving up the roads and there's only one person in it. <laughs> I mean, it, that's what you get with capitalism is desensitizing to the possibility of we and sharing, you know, and playing. So improvisation and embodiment Again, opens mm. up all sorts of things about um, how we're situated, the ergonomics. I think, imagine a number of gamers, which I think is fantastic. The extreme could be, well, I'm in a game and I'm going to just be on it for th three weeks, not doing anything else, and I'm not eating, you know, I'm not getting up, I'm not going outside because I'm so absorbed in the game. Well, it becomes problematic because you're not getting sunlight, you're not getting food, you're not looking after your physicality. And so, therefore, there's a, there's a payoff there. Mm. So that's on a kind of very extreme level. So embodiment which engages in the forces of nature. And this is one of the criticisms I have of the, of the metaverse, uh, which I think is a great thing. It will be important, but it is a tool. It's not reality. It's a different reality. It's not in second life. There I can fly. I can jump off things. I can just teleport from one place to another. Sure. And that's all fantastic. It's all great, but it's a tool 
for acquiring information, experience, and knowledge, but I can't do it in my man cave. If I want to go to the shops, I can't teleport to the shops. You know, there are physical things. So embodiment is really making sure that we understand that distinction and how they merge. So for me, that's, that, that's, those are two things that are really important. Other things which I think are really important is skill acquisition. We all like to develop skill acquisition. And I think a lot of games have this thing. That's one thing I loved about the um, relationship between chance and skill. If your skill is too easy, then we no longer want to play because it's not challenging me and it's not challenging us anymore. If it's too difficult, it's so random that it's just by chance, then there's no need to play because you're not, there's no feedback. Mm. Whereas that a sweet spot between challenge and chance that I think is really beautiful. And I know this people have played nationally basketball. And you, if you play any kind of any game, whether it's basketball, board game, or you're playing with your friends, that relationship between chance and skill is what's exciting and playful. I had one experience in basketball which alerted me to this particular fact. Uh, I remember when so I was playing against Ed Boner, who was a Sudanese international. I'd watched him on television when I was a school when I was in, in London. But this time, so I was playing. He was playing for Liverpool. I was playing for Plymouth Raiders. Was, we went to Liverpool to play them. This is in the kind of equivalent to the Champions League in football, sort of, you know, second tier. So you, there's a premiership and there's a second, a first division. We were in the first division. We went up to sort of Liverpool. And Liverpool at that time were, they were a premiership team that had been demoted into the, the first division. So they were a really good, tight outfit. And they beat us by 30 points. And so we came back. We, we won quite a few and we lose a few. We're back at mid-table, so it was okay. But they came down to Plymouth uh, for the return match. And I was charged to mark Ed Boner. And I had one of those games, which I, I have no memory of it almost. <laughs> it was just, it was like I was in this hollow space where my recollection of it is like freeze frames and sort of slight movements, and, and then suddenly I was over here. So there's almost gaps in my memory of it. But also it was ease. It was like I was in a floating ease. Everything was so easy. The hoop seemed to be huge. And so mm. putting it in the hoop didn't seem to be an issue. Just like you just put it in the hoop. It was a very strange experience. And in that match, I scored, uh, you know, like 27 points. I kept Ed Boner down to a particular, and we won by three points, which is a it was a shock result in the league at the time. But I remember going back into the dressing room, like they were shouting, screaming, ah, you know. And I remember going into the um, change rooms and sitting down, and was very, very upset because I was not in control of what happened, mm. but I experienced flow. I experienced something had happened at that relationship to his chance relaxation and I don't know what all sorts of things which happened which meant that my body was at ease and I knew that I didn't have the skill to reproduce that moment or that I needed to change my relationship to practice because it, it became very clear that in order to do that week in and week out I needed to be training a whole lot more and mm. it made me think about the Premier League tied, uh, sides, and also at that time, Michael Jordan was the big, big news in America. And I just thought, I it was, I really had to think, oh my goodness, now I now know what he has to do to just suddenly step into that flow space. So 
that was a great one. I mean, I, I still, my, my game improves vastly, but, you know, that was a one-off. That's when, when I knew that, well, well, am I prepared at this particular time in my life to do that? Or do I want to explore what this flow space is? Um, I had been doing Tai Chi with a master and I thought to myself, mm, I think I want to explore the flow space and that flow state. And that's really, basically, that was another turning point, actually. If the, the Dungeons and Dragons moment was something which made me go, okay, there's a right. randomized structure that allows this new space to emerge, fascinating, really interested in this, then the, the game against Ed Boner was physical. That was a physical. So one was imaginative. The Dungeons and Dragons was the imaginative. Because you can't block, you know, if you say something and you roll the dice, the dice tells you, you can't say, <laughs> you can't say, well, I, I did it. If you get a D, if you roll a D20 and you go, right, okay, I've shoot an arrow at this particular goblin. If I roll a D20, if I roll a 20, then the arrow goes straight to the head. If I roll a one, then I miss the target. It bounces up and hits my foot. <laughs> so, ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, so, I mean, it, and, and there's this, there's something about that, that beautiful, sweet spot between chance and uncertainty and skill so so you so that was um so skill acquisition which by the way i think that is absolutely a wonderful and lovely skill to teach too you know that's a really uh, really powerful um i'm i'm definitely in that along those lines too i just think that uh the ability for someone to learn skills and how to acquire them. But also I think what you were pointing out is, is gain the insight into how to enhance your skill acquisition yourself or, or to yes. see different levels or qualities of skill acquisition. Yeah. Lovely. And I, and I think that that also leads to kind of a sense of the difference between specializing and generalizing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's a really good way to, that's a good um, distinction. And this is why I think often I know that my work and discussion of the range from philosophy and theology and religious studies without any kind of denomination. I'm not interested in denomination. I'm quite tired of it. Because uh. it's, you know, it, it's like, you know, no more denomination, please. Let's just get to pure spirituality. You know? <laughs> let's, okay. like, let's get to the Let's go to the thing now. You know, it's, it's, there are no we names. Take off, take off the training wheels. That's what I like Take off say. the training wheels. Yeah, just forgive. You've had enough now. It's done. Um, but uh, so that distinction, I think, is, is great. Partly because I think we are, as learners, as learners and facilitators, or you could say teachers. I mean, teaching sure. is a word which has problem. is problematized because it, it can come, sometimes be seen as something, I'm going to give you something and you'll be beholden to me for it. Sure, that, yeah, that is, is the problem. Actually, that's the problem with the word teacher. Sure. Rabbi has a similar, similar kind of thing, but rabbi, I think... Or guru, too. Guru has a similar, yes, yeah, so it has a thing. So it's sort of like there's a bit... And I think although there is a respect for elders and learning, I think it's important. I do think elders are important. And I, do think, I do think people who can hold, who can facilitate, that shit. Are also important to be revered in some way. So I'm not knocking that because some of the people I revered, like Jesus and Muhammad and Dao Tuts, these are with the, their words, not the interpretations of the people, but their words. You think, hang on a minute, 
yeah. we see wisdom and yeah. there's wisdom there. And, and one of the things that I've always loved about Jesus is, um, you know, so outside of Christian denominations now, just looking at his words and what he, what has been written down. Again, we don't even know how much that has been doctored over time. So, but even so, they still shine through in some way. And one thing you get is someone who, whenever they were asked a question, they never gave an answer. Mm-hmm. They gave a parable. Now, what does that mean? It means that the person who listens to that parable has a chance to discover. So what Jesus is doing, and a lot of these great philosophers, Buddha was um, a master at this, I think, is that they yeah, don't yeah. rob they don't rob the person who's inquiring, they don't rob them of discovery. You know, if I turn around and say, I'm going to teach you this, and then when someone says to you, oh, where did you learn that? You say, oh, that person taught me. Whereas what Jesus is always doing, always doing is like, I will provide you a pool of water and you will find it, you will discover that inner light, that inner wisdom that will reveal the answer to you. So you hmm. own the process of discovery. That is genius. <laughs> it That's is genius. I'm sorry, at the highest level of the Kabbalah, that's genius. Because you're teaching someone to teach themselves. Mm. And that's really when your ego disappears, because you're not saying, don't don't rely on me. You know, I am here to facilitate your growth. Yeah. And that's, going back to what you were just saying about those distinctions there, I think that's for me, a really important part of play. Mm. Because play is always communal. Play, when you see children playing, they, you know, there's hierarchies, but there's play. There's, they know that it's a game. And that game is somehow rehearsing or exploring or negotiating or finding things out. That's it. And then you finish the game and you go and eat, eat your food and you sit down and you come back and say, right, let's, let's carry on our game. <laughs> you know, there is a clear distinction between which feeds in and it's great, but that's, yeah. So discover, personal discovery and growth. So facilitation, I think is really important. Can you talk to, um, because I feel like it's right on the edge of where we are, in this conversation, can you talk to the concept of the benefit of failure? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yes. Failure. Well, I think the word failure is also problematic because it's, it's, um, and it goes down, I suppose it comes down to dualism. Yeah, so maybe it's maybe reconciling failure, or I'm you know, yeah, exactly reconcile, yeah. But but no, benefits of failure, I think, is absolutely right. Um, But I think you know, the road to success is paved with failures, right? Um, You know, that's that, and anyone who's succeeded in anything will tell you that. You 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 know, the the media and social media will exonerate the moment. And I remember, I remember when I was, I remember when. in the, in the early 80s, in the early 80s, I, dis- I discovered break dancing and body popping. And so it was a big thing for us. We were like, you know, 
putting the mats down and putting the music on. We had a big ghetto blasters and we'd all do our stuff. And there was a cousin of mine who'd come over from America using the Malcolm McCrown video. And he was fantastic. He did this, all these popping moves. I'd never seen that before in my life. I hadn't even seen it on television. But I'd seen a little bit in the Malcolm McCrown video. I was like, wow, what's he, what are you doing? So he stayed with us for about two weeks and, and then popped off. <laughs> you know, I never, never saw him again. Yeah, literally popped off. He, said he went off somewhere else. And I was like, he just was, he didn't stop body popping. Day, I mean, every day he was practicing and doing new things. And I just caught that fever with him. I was like, what are you doing now? And he showed me how to moonwalk. He showed me how to do this kind of, all these weird um, forms of movement. But, um, but so we would get gathered together. And I remember thinking to myself that I would go to a particular, you know, situation or, you know, uh, a gathering and then see something and think, oh, that was really good. And I'd go home and I'd practice in my bedroom or I might practice with people, we'd work something out and we'd practice, practice, practice. And then you don't reveal it until it's fully formed. Of course, you mm -hmm. go there and then you do it. People go, oh, wow, how did you do that? Oh, yeah, well, I just, you know, I just did it. But of course, <laughs> you're hiding the fact that you spent three weeks, four weeks, you know, every day trying to perfect the move, um, which, is, which is kind of linked to this download or quick culture, you know, this somehow the genius of you just does it. Oh, I could just do it, you know, uh, which is it's it's rubbish. And I think Neo in the, in, in Matrix exacerbated that a bit when he, <laughs> he downloads I know Kung Fu. He's thinking, right. no, doesn't work that way. However, it was compelling as an idea. It was compelling as an idea in terms of that thing. So, yeah, I, I think, <laughs> but failure is crucial to growth i always feel like there's a kind of slowed quantum thing going on this is a kind of it's only speculation on my part so it's not a really fully formed idea so i'm just i'm just rehearsing this idea with you now but it's a bit like mm -hmm. it's a bit like when a, a plant's growing it sort of you feel like it tests all the possibilities almost in the quantum you know all at the same time and it knows which is the easiest one and then follows the most flowed path so testing and you see which i mean i remember when my my son did the crawling thing um and so and you watch them when they're going to a new space and they're crawling around and you see them just testing things out picking things up dropping and then you know if i took if i took a time-lapse cap film yeah. of what they did in that one moment when we've arrived you'd see them literally cover the whole space testing things out trying things and when you stop them from doing it they scream Right. Well, because, you know, we're naturally, we go into a space and we have to fill it up. We have to go into it. We, and we, we, we see that most, I don't know if you, um, where if you go, I remember, I, I saw there were two experiences where I had. One is when you go to a tundra with snow falls heavily for the first time, you see pure white snow around. Oh, my God, virgin snow. The first thing you want to do is run around. Right. And just, just try and, build stuff and, you know, because you want to somehow inhabit this pureness out there and the same thing when we were in the desert I was filming in the desert and there was so much sand I, was, I remember looking we just like looking we just were walking you just want to you just want to somehow take in this this uniformity which is so beautiful and that I think we are compelled to experiment and with experimentation you learn from what doesn't work Mm -hmm. that's the key thing i think that's the key thing about failure is failure isn't failure it's 
you, 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 it's experiment. You, oh, right, that doesn't work. So therefore, what can I learn from that to try something new? How do we set up situations for students, learners, that, where they can feel okay? I mean, I'd love for you to talk to this. I, I think I feel like I should, and I do ask this of a lot of people, but I feel like <clears throat> what is a working activity where people can have fun failing, but get something out of it. Like, and one idea behind that, at least for me, is when they fail, they can enjoy it. And I'll just give a little anecdote from today. So today I'm, I'm in my third day of camp. Uh, my camps are four or they're five hours each day. Yeah. And today's Wednesday. And um, for the first time, the kids entered in game. They went into play and they don't always uh, actually. Yeah. So we started out in a marketplace. Uh, they moved through a situation and then they, they got into the situation where they, they uh, went to hunt down a problem that's in, under the village and they go down uh, into a well and they're attacked by some creature that's got some tentacles, a bunch of uh, three of them. And uh, I was overseeing two different groups playing. And so there were two dungeon masters with each group and there were four or five players in each group. And there was this moment, I'm just trying to set up this moment where this boy yeah. for the first time is getting to do some kind of combat. And this has got to be one of the most interesting moments ever uh, for every single person who ever yeah. plays Dungeons and Dragons or any role-playing game where it's very exciting because you're threatened mortally by something. Uh, yeah. And this tentacly thing down underneath this well in this dripping cavern, uh, you know, uh, this, this dank cavern is attacking and he whips out his crossbow and he yeah. fires it and he rolls a one. So he rolls oh. it. The first thing he does is roll an epic fail. The very first <laughs> time ever. And it, it happens like more often than not, funny enough. Yeah. And then exactly, and, yeah. and we had to come to the we had to come to the description. And just like I see your smiling face right now on this phone call. Yeah. <laughs> actually, when he rolled a one and he discovered that twang the crossbow string basically ripped and shredded up the feathers that were on the bolt. The bolts yeah. never even moved. There was just a big twang. And nothing happened, right? But the big teeth, grin, smile, laugh, giggle that this yeah. child produced, which you could have imagined actually it could be the total opposite, which is like yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the most sour-faced, worst grimace <laughs> and, yeah. and embarrassment. It, it, it does happen. I've seen it happen actually at the mm. table too, where it's the most embarrassing thing ever. You have this moment to be heroic and you blow it because you're the one who yeah. rolled the die and this circumstances is, is what happened. But I have to tell yeah. you that this kid took it so in stride. And then at the end of camp, when we went around in a circle and we just all listed yeah. a, high, a <laughs> highlight of the day, he said, yeah, it, it was when my crossbow malfunctioned and he also yeah. owned it. It was my, it wasn't when my character's no, crossbow no, yeah, malfunctioned. Yeah, it was yeah. when my crossbow malfunctioned. Uh, so fantastic. You know, this is just an example of when you fail, actually somehow it was okay for him and it was okay for everybody around. And actually that's one of the most joyful things to me was his reaction to the failure because yeah. one of the other kids at the table 
may have reacted the complete opposite way. So for them yeah. to actually experience him in joy of failure and just being like, wow, I was the movie moment where this thing totally went as a catastrophe. <laughs> but that's I think that's, part that, of, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I think that's, I think that it gives me a lot of pleasure, that story. So thank you very much for that. That's great story. You know, I mean, you said it there, really. It's there in, what you, in your story. Exactly. It. If play, art, theatre, craft, these are artifices there. I think it's a nature of being human. It's part of the inner life. And there is a tendency in humanities and the arts to try and make these kind of broad statements like, ah, oh, communication is art. There is no distinction between the virtual and the real. You know, we have these grand statements, which I think are dis disingenuous, because of course, intellectually, we could argue those points, but in reality, and this is where children understand this clearly, the child knows the difference between their game space and playtime, and what they have to do, the chores, and being and going and physicality. And there's always this relationship and that distinction, I think, is very important. It's like the distinction between waking state and dream state. The dream state mixes memory, observation, and the land of the imagination in the same way play space does. Play, we mix memory and imagination and just make believe. You know, uh, Chekhov talked about that in his work. Is like the land of make-believe, things which are made up, which is very different from Stanislavski, who was all about trying to excavate your memories to try and use the kind of sense perception of that in your character development. Chekhov was saying, yeah, you have that, but you also have the challenges of making it up. You have an imagination, which is just as important improvisation. Improvisation requires failure. It's not yeah, even, I like that. Yeah, it's true. It, 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 it requires it. It's, it, it can't... Mm. It's impossible to just know what you're doing. If you're driving somewhere for the first time, you know, if you think, oh, I can't find it. I, my first house I knocked on, I couldn't find it. So therefore, I'm going to give up. Well, that thing you might want might be just next door or it might be mm. just down the street. Mm. And just because your first attempt was wrong, you've abandoned the whole thing. So that's one thing. But I think also, I think what's interesting about failure when you're talking about in that context is that you have the narrative failure which is something which builds up. And DICE really does lend itself to those large epic narrative failures. <laughs> which, mm -hmm. And when they're done as a narrative, what you're left with is a story. Mm -hmm. And the That's story exactly is a right. Yeah, you're left with a story. So you, you can't wait to tell the story. We've all had situations. Like one of the things I do with my story, right, okay, we need to think of the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened. And then you tell you tell the partner. Right. Of course, so what happens is they go, oh my God, you know, I don't want to say, you know, it's, this, it's a failure. You're, you're telling someone about something which you, and in some cases, people have said things that they've never told anybody before. Right. And then of course, they, they, they have to observe the other person's reaction. Like, oh my God. And, they, and of course they get excited by their reaction because they're telling a story. And so I get them to rehearse it a little bit. Um, and they, they, teach, they tell different people. So they get, each time they, each time they render the story, Mm -hmm. they groove the narrative and they get excited by the story the story takes on an artifice you see? it takes on something else 
<laughs> and then it's fantastic. And then, yeah. they, and then I said to them, okay, now you've got to, I give them about, and not too long. Time is also, restricted durations is also an exciting thing for play. You've only got 10 seconds or you've only got a minute. Right, go. <laughs> Move right around, right. you know, because it stops, it stops overthinking because you haven't got much time. See, it's another, another good tool I use. But anyway, so, so then I think, right, you've got 10 minutes and they've got to do a mime version of the story. Mm. Right, it's gorgeous. So now, that, so now they have to embody the failure. They have to describe it with their physicality. And I give them a few tips. And then they have to show another person. And then the final part of the exercise is where they have to now put the words that they spoke with the mind. Mm. And of course, you have this epic expression. But at the end of it, they're saying, oh, my God, I so enjoyed expressing the failure. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, 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 that was that, that, that was the point. I was basically saying that. That's why I was laughing when you're saying about the the. Uh, and I love the dice idea. is perfect. Uh, I think because it, what it does, it immediately it takes the responsibility away from from the person. That's right. But at the same time, they own the story. Yeah, it's their story. It's yeah. it's it's great. So first, they have the embarrassment of the story. And that's usually the first embarrassment. They say, oh, my God, I, I felt so embarrassed talking about it, but it didn't feel as bad as I thought it was. And then once they get past that, then they're into the meat of expression. What's interesting is that they set themselves or their memory almost in the third person. Right. Um, and that's what I think, you know, when you're rolling the dice, it forces you to be both first person and third person at the same time. And I like that about Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I love I love this idea. Well, just that we that we've said here together, like failure leads to story. You know, like yeah, it, yeah yes, exactly. It's, it's so it's so true. I mean, there's somehow in in, in you telling this uh, your story, uh, I was or this this activity. Um, you and I both have older teenagers. Um, yeah. Have you have yours gone into their twenties yet? Or are you still older teenagers? Well, my daughter is going to be twenty this year. Yeah, my do- my son is going to be twenty at the uh, February first. Oh um, wow, fantastic! Yeah, so we so we shared that same that same thing. Yeah, I was visited um, of this memory, and and young kids do it all the time. Is sitting around the table, and mm. uh, after dinner or during dinner or whatever, and them saying, "Dad, tell us a story of when you got hurt." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it's like they're literally yeah. they want to hear the story of when it went wrong you know and it's yeah. like yeah. And, and you know i'm thinking okay um first of <laughs> all first of all do i really want to be telling this story yeah 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 exactly but yeah. then it, but then it's like then i'm thinking to myself well okay actually it's gone wrong so many times but so like give me a situation you know and they'll be like something that went wrong like when you were at a pool and it's like oh yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. They want to hear those stories, you know, and yeah. that's, it's funny because it's not, you know, tell me the story of when everything went right. And I think that yeah. they want to share in the reality, which is we, we struggle, you know? Yeah, we, yeah, 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 yeah. The, and they the struggle. Greek, yeah, the Greek term for eudaimonia, which is translated usually as well-being, is a much more, see, well-being as a kind of, slightly liberal hippie kind of tone to it which isn't really the original idea of well eudaimonia eudaimonia is like well-being that is a result of struggle so 
climbing the mountain isn't necessarily totally nice. Right. You're when getting you get stronger. Mountain, yeah, you get stronger. You and when you get to the top of the mountain, your view gives you an immense sense of well-being and achievement. Very different from if you took a helicopter ride to the top. If you go helicopter ride to the top, <laughs> you sat down, you'd go, oh, it's lovely, because it is lovely and it's wonderful, but you haven't invested physically getting to the top there. Yeah, so it's like if, if mom or dad pay for you to get wherever, or that, you know, somebody really wants a bicycle, the difference between the bicycle just gets purchased for them versus they have to spend, you know, uh, a whole summer working two or three jobs to earn that yeah. bicycle. It's a totally yeah. different sense of well-being. I don't know. Maybe you can speak to that. Is it a matter of earning it or is it a matter of surviving um, it or is it a matter of uh, tussling with it? What, what is, what is, there's this concept of the game or playing the game or surviving the game or coming up in the game. So we, yeah. we hear that metaphor but what that really means for youth and especially youth um, who are struggling and don't have it uh, easy, so to speak, where they can get the helicopter ride to the top of the corporation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The helicopter ride for me is a bit like if the mounting is a kind of sense of bliss, oneness and, and those kind of things with the world, then you can get a helicopter ride by taking drugs. But of course... The issue about that is that if you climb to the top of the mountain, it takes longer. You also understand the gradient. When you get to the top, you also know how to get down safely. If you take a helicopter ride, if you don't have a helicopter ride down, you don't know how to get down and it can be quite a treacherous journey. Mm -hmm. so, so that's one way. And also, helicopter ride could be mummy and daddy. Mm -hmm. um, here's a helicopter, get to the top. Oh, fantastic, that's great. And you come back down again, and there isn't a kind of a sense of achievement. Right. So eudaimonia, I, I, I'll put it for you, it's E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. -I, -I, I almost said um, it right. Okay. So yeah, E, I'll, I'll, I'll spell it again. E-U-D-A-I-M-O-N-I-A. -I -I -A. So eudaimonia is a Greek word literally meaning, or literally translated as, as the state or condition of good spirit and which is commonly translated as happiness or welfare. Um, that's kind of how it's used. Mm -hmm. it, um, it, and Plato, for example, and Aristotle, he talks about, they talk about what is it that we need to do to produce well-being and happiness within a civic society. So part of it is like, how do we engage with struggle? Mm -hmm. So it's not actually overcoming struggle or even having expectations about the nature of the struggle, I think that often we have qualifying things. Oh, your struggle is more, is less than my struggle. So what you got to worry about? Mm -hmm. Again, what I think is really good about the great masters was very clear in that attachment causes pain. Mm. And so therefore processes by which we let go and allow ourselves to be rather than to have or even to do, then... Um, we are released from a kind of the pain of attachment. So I mean, it's beautiful in some ways because it's very simple. If, I, if I'm holding on to something mm -hmm. um, and someone's trying to pull it away from me, there's pain in holding it on. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I, if I then, if they're, if they're stronger than me and they rip it from me, 
the ripping is going to be painful and I'm going to recoil from the from the loss whereas if I am not attached to whatever I'm holding if someone's pulling it away from me I would let go and there will be no pain and there will be no pain of loss this is a very hard to do it's hard to do though sometimes right I mean hey that's and that's that's again eudaimonia is work because right. you, it's the it's the engaging in the struggle right this, what is the struggle that enga- we have to engage with in mm-hmm. order to rise above or to find that well-being and happiness so well-being and happiness isn't just something about you know because if you say to a drunk someone who's um, got an alcohol dependency and you say what makes you happy they're going to say a bottle of whiskey or if you a serial philanderer they say oh what makes you happy oh meeting a new woman so actually our psyche and our habits are not a, the best guide when asking the term what makes you happy what is your well-being and that's what i think unimedia opens up it's more than just happiness in its kind of simplistic sense it's more how do we engage with the struggle? How do we engage with yeah, those things that release us from either an egoic dependency or substance dependency, or even a desire to overpower or to be overpowered? What about when we're in a situation um, where we don't have the support, uh, we don't have the self-esteem when as you say, uh, maybe the people around us are playing the game or part of the game and um, even trying to get others into it, which can also be a dangerous game itself too, right? Um, yeah. uh, just to kind of look back at our conversation, we talked about embodiment, improvisation, skill acquisition, personal discovery, benefits, yeah. reconciliation of failure. You know, we come to this concept here at the end of Eudaminia, how to engage with struggle so how, how are youth going to be moving into their own identity? Maybe that's the word I'm looking for is how do youth move into their own identity when faced with the game of life, the game of the street, um, but also needing something like playfulness and the, and the game of su- surviving, but with a sense of humor and not just bearing it or existing like how do we live how do we and that's a little bit of of you know weaving in that concept of that the the letting go of attachment so that it's maybe not so painful but without becoming numb i guess i'm worried i I want to see that play helps people get into their lives rather than just you know completely detaching and becoming numb yeah no you're you're, well i mean this is this is a very difficult question. And I think it's something, <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's because it, it, it requires context. For example, I remember when I was growing up, we used to have, I'm not sure we have this so much now because it probably wouldn't survive the health and safety checks that we all have Ofsted. to do. Ofsted. Yeah, yeah. But we used to have these adventure playgrounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, adventure playgrounds were fantastic. And it was a place, if you were a kid that was marginalized or you slightly hyperactive, you'd go to an adventure playground and you could paint stuff on there, you'd build stuff. It was all probably very dangerous, but I mean, 
and there were some accidents every so often, but it was about a place where you could take risk. Mm, taking risk, and, thank you. Great. You know, and I think that, and but it's risk safely, because of course, and this is again how we measure risk. It comes back down to this thing we we're talking about before about how we manage skill and uncertainty, how they blend. An adventure program was actually had ropes, people just swing off stuff, and there'd be sand pit and lots of graffiti. And it actually had a particular style. It was very urban. Mm -hmm. um, it's an urban kind <clears throat> of area. And it was a cool place to go. And it was a chance to be introduced to different things. And that would be an environment for youngsters to bridge that space between play and and maybe responsibility. I mean, it was never quite perfect because, of course, it all came. Be, it also became a, a place where people met. But it was better there than on the street because mm -hmm. at the moment, I think a lot of young people who are struggling can't have been marginalised from school, roaming the streets, but any they can't go anywhere. They're not allowed to go into shops. Not going to the area. So they have nowhere to go. So they're excluded and they are left out on the street. Mm -hmm. Because no, there, there isn't a place they can go to. All oh, right, okay. This is a place for you. The adventure playground used to be, or the, the youth center where you can play table tennis, or you could play, there were things you could do where you could increase your skill. As a young teenager, I was reasonably bright, but I liked I like acquiring skills, physical skills, football, basketball, you know. We like to play. We want to use our hands. I have this thing called the Golden Triangle, which is part of my book, part of my um, title of my book, which is um, called The Return Beat, Interfacing with Our Interface, A Spiritual Guide to the Golden Triangle. And the Golden Triangle is essentially the voice expressed through song, rap, poetry spoken word so it's the voice that's the one point of the triangle mm -hmm. and then the next point of the triangle would be percussion and hands so use of the hands so that could be sport table tennis darts drumming music strumming manipulating making so it's the hands you've got voice hands and then the third point of the triangle is um is the of movement Mm -hmm. motion so to dance body communication body language movement in terms of sport and uh, this is something which is deeply african this is it's through the golden triangle that we pass on knowledge that's how knowledge is passed on through ritual theater mask mask wearing mask was never meant to be put into museums it's a western trophy right. cabinet Right. <clears throat> the trophy cabinet is an insult. It's an insult to masks. It's an absolute insult. And, uh, and it, it, we, we, we've been silent about it as uh, Africans. We, you know, we allowed the West to go, oh, look at this interesting anthropological studies. Dead ends of humanity. It's an insult. Masks were never meant to be seen like that. They were meant to be worn and performed. That's it. Mm. Um, and uh, they're dead in, in cabinets. Or they're dormant. I wouldn't even say they're dead because once you put them on, they come alive. So they're in prison. And if we were to loosely, we could loosely say, for example, 
ways in which different parts of the world emphasize transmission of knowledge. And I'm not going to put a glo I'm not putting a standard or even a saying that one is better than the other because I think they all have their attributes, but there's dangers in all. There's dangers in the golden triangle, but uh, in the West, Westernized cultures and maybe Middle East, the word writing is a way of transmitting knowledge and knowing. Not to say that there aren't other ways of doing or seeing things or understanding things, mm -hmm. but what is seen as prominent is writing the word, the transmission of knowledge through publications. In the East, I'm talking the Far East particularly, maybe even India and China, there is written traditions, mm -hmm. but knowledge as an idea is usually transmitted through meditation and actually not through writing. Writing is a way of coding and maybe noting things down, but actually knowledge and wisdom and understanding is transmitted through meditation, through movement practices. And in, in, in Japan, the whole business of not knowing or the idea of Zen takes, it, takes the Buddhism to its to embrace the absurd as a way to release the ego's desire to know. But the, the equivalent of that in Africa is the golden triangle, is dance, rhythm, movement, song. That's how we pass our knowledge down through rituals and performances and cloth, worn cloth. Mm. Um, that's that's the equivalent. This feeds into different learning types. Western learning situations tend to, well, most definitely focus on cognitive, head-based understanding. Mm -hmm. um, whereas um, there are lots of cultures where heart-based understanding is much more prevalent. They'll, even not, they'll keep you away from words and get you to listen with your heart the intelligence of the heart, and therefore you're listening to the neural net of Gaia, learning through osmosis, learning through practical engagement. Yeah. Is, is, the, is the golden triangle a learning through the heart or a learning through the body? And is that the same thing or are they different? Well, no, it, it's, a, it's um, that's a good question. I think it's learning through the whole body. You have Ori, which is the head, which is always seen as a governor. So it's like the, it's a center of attention. Mm -hmm. Center of, you know, a lot of our senses are governed in the ears, nose, eyes, taste. So it's all comes up to this area of the brain. But it's not the most important part because it's only, it's, 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 it's an important part. So mm -hmm. you've got the head and then you have, and that links in with the, um, the cervical part of the spine where the nerve endings go through the atlas straight down. The thoracic part is to do with where the major, it's a major projection of activity in mm -hmm. the heart, the lungs, arms, fingers. And so this is the kind of, so it's the thoracic part and that will be the heart intelligence. And then when you come down into your gut, you're now in the gut intelligence, which is now to do with legs, your procreation, big time. And that's your lumbar region thicker part of the spine 
And so from an African point of view, to say that one is war dominant is to miss the idea of the whole. I suppose you could loosely say it's like, um, I think in the Kabbalah, they, you have the seat, which is water, which is kind of where the hips are. Your chest is air, so lungs, obviously, lungs and the movement of blood and so on. And then, of course, um, and water in the stomach. And then, of course, fire, electricity and information is in the head. And then, of course, for me, I would put earth would be in the feet because you reside on the planet. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the intelligent isn't, intelligence isn't one of separating. Cognitive, rational intelligence is best served in the head. But that's not the only form of intelligence on the planet. And also, I think, you know, when when the Nubia, Nubia collapsed um, with the Axum coming over, the Christians coming over, and uh, Romans had really um, taken over Egypt, we managed to keep uh, that area, Kemet, for quite some time. And then, because a lot of us migrated from the east, to mm-hmm. West Africa. They went from the Nile to the Niger. It wasn't called the Niger then. Part of that was, you know, we were resisting. I mean, Nubia had its own writing system, which is based on a kind of Nubian hieroglyphics. There was a desire for Islam and Christianity to get rid of paganism. And mm-hmm. so a lot of us just said, you know, well, we're going to move away from that and, and move away from writing. Because what writing does is it favours sitting down and cognitive activities. It doesn't favour engaging with the environment, it, with your body, you see. You're mm. listening to the rhythms of the body, listening to the rhythms of nature. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in the, who's in the special forces, and we often have a particular, because of my martial arts, and also we've we, we grown up together. And uh, he was saying something which is very interesting, where he gets really angry with films on these particular things because before you go on a jungle expedition or you go into something which is behind enemy lines you would only be washing with water for about two months beforehand to make sure that you have no smells uh, other than your own body smell and mm-hmm. also you would be taking a particular drug which would make sure that your stools would be virtually solid and you take everything with you because you'll get some trackers, particularly in the bush, um, some junk uh, in, in Africa and in places in Indonesia and those places in that way that can smell you a mile away. Right. Most of us can't even smell <laughs> around the corner. Right, <laughs> you, know, right. if you live in a city, we like forget that kind of smell, you know. Or if you do, we we haven't we don't we've lost the ability to distinguish. We go to supermarkets to buy stuff. We can't even we we, we even we've even lost the ability to smell when somebody's gone off. We we rely on packaging. Right. I mean, I I've tried to keep those things because I'm interested in how we do them, and sure. uh, and that's but uh, but that's just because I'm a geek like that. <laughs> I like to do those things, but most of us we don't do that and don't right. care. Right. Of course, when when civilization cr- cr- um, crashes, because some point if it doesn't, if we it's not going to self-correct, it will do. Those who survive are those who can who can who we have to use their own physical technology. Right. Different parts of the body. I love that. And physical technology. Yeah. Thank you for Olu for joining me today on the Teacher Gamer podcast. And check out his book, The Return Beat, Interfacing with Our Interface, a spiritual approach to the golden triangle. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Wonderful. You can find that on Amazon and other any other places you want to tell us about where you can find that on your yeah, own personal no, website. Yeah, but, but most yeah, most most of the um outlets online. Thank you again, Olu, for for taking the time with us. Uh, it's been my pleasure. And and certainly if part one will continue. It was great. Really, really fantastic. Such a, a vibrant conversation. Here's to the next one. A love to all the family uh, and friends and colleagues that we share in common. Yeah, likewise. You take care, my friend. Ciao. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed the Teacher Gamer podcast, a Wild Mind Training production, text and production copyright 2021 and 22 by Wild Mind Training for Teacher Gamer Revolution. All rights reserved.